What's going on, folks? Welcome back to yet another episode of In Defense of Liberation, the show that is working towards and educating about a true people's liberation movement and one day soon a true proletarian revolution. But until that day comes, I am your host, Josh, and I'd like to say thank you so much for stopping by. This is your morning commute, February 1st, 2022. For those of you who don't know, now I am titling the episodes that I am driving to work as the morning commute. Uh, So this isn't necessarily one of the episodes where we're going to be getting, uh, you know, uh, expertise coverage from, you know, an author or an organizer. But in fact, uh, you will be hearing from me on my way to work. So if that is something you're interested in, feel free to stay tuned. But anyways, so I wrote this little blog piece this morning titled Fascism in America. I uh, continuously kind of sway back and forth between whether or not I like or, uh, you know, write uh, blogs. I seem to use that and the podcast more for my own, like, personal engagement with these ideas and development and the ability to share that with people who offer up critiques and criticisms and also come on the show and speak with me. So, um, you know, that's really what this show is about. So at the end of the day, you know, I don't be, I'm not, I'm not expecting to be right a hundred percent of the time. I'm not expecting to be a hundred percent right. Uh, you know, some of the time, I uh, am expecting to be uh, somewhat right somewhat of the time. And I think that that is the expectation we should all have when you really can't expect that you know everything about everything. Like there is so much context, so much historical and materialistic, uh, or I should say uh, materialist uh, foundations to a lot of the issues and problems we're facing today that if you you know, divest those from their context, you're ultimately looking at a whole different picture than what you are looking at when you discuss these things while also discussing uh, capitalism, imperialism, settler colonialism, etc. So I'm, you know, on my way to learning. I spend a lot of my time, as I discuss on the show, listening to podcasts myself, um, reading a lot. I have uh, not done the official tally, but I think I did somewhere between 60 and 80 books that I finished last year. I'm hoping to do 100 this year. I'm on three already. Um, It's February 1st, though, so that means uh, that we don't have a whole lot of time left. But um, anyways, I'm hoping to be able to uh, translate a lot of that into action coming up soon. Um, because I think the situation within, uh, you know, what we call the United States is, I mean, it's always been dire for millions of people. I think when you, when you take this line that like, oh, things are getting bad now, even though I don't think we always mean it in such a way, It can be perceived and, uh, you know, it might even be a subconscious slip, you know, that um, it wasn't difficult or was not as difficult at an earlier period in time for some folks. And that's clear. Like, we know that there are contradictions not only among the working class, but also among the ruling class, Uh, certain groups, certain communities have been kept out of, uh, you know, any form of, uh, existence and survivability. Um, other groups have been, uh, kept in, uh, extremely exploitative and oppressive positions through systemic legislation and also what we might call like unconscious law. For example, here in the United States, Uh, We know that it is unwritten white law that when uh, historically uh, black, Latino, uh, Asian or other individuals who are non-white 
um, have gotten a little, you know, a little taste of, of life, it's taken from them, literally. We have the Tulsa massacre. We have all kinds of historical examples of retaliation against uh, enslaved people who attempted to run away. <clears throat> we have all kinds of historical and, uh, you know, ongoing even forms of oppression and exploitation that make it so that groups of people within the working class have to endure <clears throat> double, triple, or even, you know, quadruple plus forms of exploitation and oppression. Excuse me, here, my throat. <coughs> I don't have anything to drink either, and it's very dry, but, uh, I think when we are looking at this as, you know, people who live within the empire, whether intentionally or not, I think we tend to forget that, like, we don't have all the chips. Like, like I was saying earlier, like, there's a lot of context, there's a lot of deeper analysis that needs to be done that... If you're not working with all the pieces, it's very difficult for you to to really see clearly the whole picture. So, <clears throat> I recently did an episode with Elena from the Red Nation, which you should check out. And I think one thing was clear throughout that conversation. Listen and follow indigenous black, Latino, Asian, and other organizations who are made up of and led by exploited and oppressed people themselves. Now, (laughs) this is difficult because for some who genuinely are still entrenched in the propagandized identity of tokenism. What I mean by that is we will simply see an individual like Candace Owens or, you know, uh, others are used as weapons against more radical (coughs) and revolutionary thinkers and activists because it will be said well how can you say you know black people need liberation black folks are not free in the United States of America when someone like Candace Owens says that America is the freest nation in the world. Understanding that identity does not necessitate politics and centering the importance of politics in our analysis is very crucial to being able to not only not fall into these traps ourselves, but also to be able to undermine the disgusting and dehumanizing pattern and practice of tokenizing exploited individuals who choose to find ways to not be so exploited in order to further their own you know benefits and moral high horse from that exploitative system what I'm saying is this we cannot simply accept that because a certain person or a certain group of people 
belong to a certain group, national or ethnic background or identity that therein they speak for the entire community. If we look, for example, at groups like Cubans, the Cubans who have fought for 60 years against U.S. imperialism, capitalist encirclement, blockades, sanctions, diseases, active attempts at invasion, have been hardened and become conscious of why, you know, maybe not in all cases, but in most cases, have become conscious of why, why it is that in Cuba, you can't get all these brand new cars, and you can't get all these brand new clothes, and you can't go to these shopping malls and you can't watch American television and movies and you know, I don't even know how much of this is true, but this is what is propagandized that the authoritarian dictatorship of the Cuban government and communist party, you know just force these people to suffer well, let's, let's investigate that what is it that is making Cuban people suffer today. Well, you know, I would say personally that the sanctions and the embargoes that make it so that they can't import medicine, food stuff, clothes, mechanical parts, uh, raw materials and resources for vaccines, that would probably play a primary role And from that point on, it would be that the decisions are made about what is produced, what is distributed and sold, and uh, what isn't. Because, you know, it would be one thing if the Cuban government had everything it needed and the Cuban people had everything they could ever want in way of raw materials and resources and and etc. Then it would be one thing if the Cuban government was just like, nope, this is all ours. But not only in Cuba are the means of production actually distributed in an egalitarian sense so that they have healthcare, housing, education like guaranteed things like pensions and food and a job if you lose yours or you know something like climate change which is leading to all sorts of problems in a majority of the Caribbean islands and throughout Latin America and the global south in general if there was to be a hurricane that came through and destroyed an entire city in the same way that uh, New Orleans was destroyed. Unlike in New Orleans, the people of these communities, the Cuban people would get housing, they would get food, they would have wages or some form of payment given to them so that they can buy the things they need to sustain themselves. They'd be given shelter in place, they'd be given any kind of, you know, medical uh, assistance that they would need. This did not happen when Katrina hit. We had to have all these private and non-profit companies come in and do whatever half-assed job they could with whatever little resources they had. And then they fucked off and New Orleans has never recovered. So understanding then that the Cubans in Florida, in Miami, who get millions of dollars from Washington and from capitalist corporations and from, you know, uh, these third-party freedom councils that are everywhere across the United States that are funded by groups like the Heritage Foundation and USAID. 
we see that their simple identification as a you know Cuban immigrant does not mean they speak for Cuban people. They might speak for some Cuban people with certain perspectives and ideologies, but they do not speak as Cuba. Candace Owens does not speak for black people. She speaks for black folks who think and have perspectives similar to her own because that is beneficial for the capitalists and imperialists to have representatives of the exploited and oppressed people that they can use as puppets to tokenize their identity so as to further the repression and exploitation of those people groups through their own understanding of their identity. You know, how much uh, did Malcolm X and others throughout the 60s and 70s have to speak about, like, you know, things like even down to wearing your natural hair and, you know, understanding that black culture and black joy do not need to look a certain way in order to appeal to the eyes of others. These things are for black people, by black people, and ultimately should be able to be, uh, you know, rejuvenated, led, and uh, decided by black folks for themselves. But instead, you see advertisements, entertainment, music, ideology, education, religion, all developing forms of, you know, weaponization to attack, I mean, historically, black people for their blackness. So to say today that, you know, simply being black means that you have it all down or simply being from Chile or the former Soviet republics or China means that you speak with an authority that cannot be disagreed with, that you speak with an authority that is based in facts. Because if we look at the bullshit-ass propaganda that comes out of these people's mouths, if we look at the bullshit-ass propaganda that they are mimicking of the capitalist and imperialist nations, then we know that this is yet another form of oppression. It is a reformation of the structure in order to further dig the roots deeper and further enslave and exploit billions of people, not just here on Turtle Island, but across the world, and doing so to continue the existence of what I consider a fascist state. So, you know, this is not me trying to speak as if I'm, you know, I know any better, right? I come from a history. I've had to learn. I've been very wrong before. I'll be wrong again. But I think in this case, we really have to do our due diligence. We have to be doing our research. We have to be analyzing and really listening to what people say. And taking it apart and saying, well, what does that mean? My favorite part about theory, like just in general, any theory, is when an individual is breaking down like a, a program or a pamphlet and saying like, okay, these ideas are good or bad, or even just simply saying, if these are the ideas, this is how they will have to come about. This is the only way that they could come to fruition. Um, because that, that deep level of analysis, of understanding, understanding, okay, when someone says something like, you know, I just want to escape, I just want to run away and go back to my roots in nature. 
Jen Marley, uh, Lena Ortiz, and another uh, comrade whose uh, name I can't remember, unfortunately, uh, just did an episode the other day on uh, this topic, you know, in quite a bit of depth. The episode was called, I think, It's Time for a Reverse Mayflower, um, which is, they always come up with fucking fantastic titles. But I um, I really liked on that episode where they talked about things like uh, commune culture and, and like uh, escapism. Because like if we understand this idea that anarchists normally have, that we have to have these autonomous regions or that hippies normally have, that we got to have these communes. What kind of effect does that have on the people who now have less, you know, accomplices, less comrades to help them fight for their freedom? What happens to the people whose land you're living on who had it stolen from them, you know, centuries ago? Whose family's land that should be, but you're living on it? And probably not taking good care of it or sharing with anyone other than your clique. I really enjoyed that because I think it's important to understand that if we have certain ideas, we have to understand that those ideas to come to fruition uh, have certain steps and consequences. And we have to analyze and know what those are. And I say this, you know, with no malice in the sense that, like, it's not people's fault that they think like that, right? Like, it's, it's, it's understandable why those ideas would be so romanticized, why they'd be written about in so many books and movies and, you know, uh, so frequently discussed on social media, is because those ideas don't always have the same power, the same capability of harming and eliminating the capitalist and imperialist system in the way that a centralized socialist state of the working and exploited people organized and, you know, actively building towards a new society uh, is far more deadly, far more uh, threatening, and far more secure than these other forms of almost escapism. And that's not to come at the uh, the anarchist and hippie folks, uh, you know, any seri- any more seriously than need be. You know, I don't really have too much beef with y'all. Just, you know, know that like you could be you could be doing better. You know, you could be helping people more uh, instead of just helping yourself. But it's difficult because we're so segmented and isolated in society. And we're, so, we're fed individualism like it's a vitamin every single day in everything we do, in the media that we consume. I'm watching, you know, I, I've... <laughs> uh, I wasn't thinking I was going to mention it, but it, I've been watching, like, just catching parts of, like, this uh, show, Eufo- that show Euphoria... And uh, I've heard quite a few people, including Jen Marley, talk about the fact that, like, it was written by one of the co-writers of, like, an Israeli uh, television show that was very similar, that basically, like, romanticizes, uh, you know, settler society and, like, the same way that Euphoria very much romanticizes, like, drug abuse and, like, sex and all kinds of other things that... uh, shouldn't be romanticized. Um, it, it just, like, it's, it strikes of individuality because, like, every single character in almost every single movie we watch is out for themselves. Like, every single uh, story that we hear that's, like, a success story is, like, somebody putting everything aside, putting their family aside, putting their, you know, uh, partners aside so that they can, like, you know have this huge success story where they work really hard, they go to school, they get a degree, they graduate, and now they they make millions of dollars. Well, as we know, to make millions of dollars, you had to have exploited someone along the way that's not making the money that they should have. There's no way that somebody today 
can be making a million dollars without siphoning off wealth from somewhere else else and that means also like your significant other like if you're making millions of dollars right but you have a a partner at home that like you know you never see that you never do anything with that you never give any you know assistance to that has to try to find their own job to support themselves that has to like you know also come home and do domestic labor that has to you know also take care of their own mental health that's exploitation too that shit is most definitely exploitation in maybe a different form but although that is the case it is still exploitation And, uh, you know, it's hard. It's hard. Because that individualism is so central to the American dream. To the American system. To settler colonialism and imperialism. But if we actually want to see a world where human beings of all backgrounds can live together... Not necessarily, you know, this wonderful idea of harmony. Because harmony is difficult. Harmony is a long ways away. But equity and egalitarianism. These are things that can actively be built. That might not be perfect. That might still have some contradictions. That might actually, not might, will have some contradictions. Will have inequality but is actively being built by the people who are suffering from that inequality themselves. If you look at countries like Nicaragua, you see that indigenous people have been given the power in their communities, rural communities have been given the power in their communities to sustain themselves, to live lives traditionally, and to be a part of the new project for socialism. It's not one or the other. It's not in the way as we formerly heard it that, you know, these groups of people have to leave their lives and become someone else in order to be a part of socialism. We know that that is not true. We know that folks as far back as Marx and Engels were talking about the need to eliminate the separation between town and country. But that does not mean that we have to eliminate country. That does not mean we have to eliminate agricultural uh, work. That does not mean we have to eliminate, you know, rural lifestyles and indigenous lifestyles. What it means is we have to allow them to exist in equity, in an egalitarian manner, in a way where each one of us together are able to work towards and build a new society where we're all fed, we're all housed, we're all clothed, we're all getting education, education that is not necessarily meant to eliminate traditional forms of knowledge and education and, you know, teaching, but is meant to incorporate the lessons we have learned in human history into those forms of teaching and doing so by giving the power, the control, and the tools to the people themselves who are exploited and oppressed in these positions to do so themselves, for themselves, with our support. We have to look at the way that nations like Bolivia, which so many fucking Westerners and leftists have critiques of, but we have to look at the way in which Bolivia, the indigenous Aima people, And the Bolivians themselves, the Bolivian state, and the many different cultures, traditions, and, you know, groups of people that exist within that, what we consider Bolivia, within those, you know, man-made borders, we have to look at the way in which they've been able to develop in the last 13 years, 14 years, 15 years, under the Movimiento al Socialismo under the Evo Morales administration and now currently under the Luis Arce administration. We have to see the way in which they align with, support, and build with 
the indigenous peoples of Bolivia. It's incredible. And yeah, there's a lot of shit that needs to be done. But one thing they got that we don't is unity. They got unity like nobody believed. They got rid of a coup. They got rid of a coup. That's incredible. Like, people don't understand how incredible that is. That doesn't always happen. Look at Burkina Faso. Look at Mali. It's difficult to hear so many people who just plainly do not understand that actions have consequences. That ideas have a material reality. We have to find ways to build unity and to build socialism together. Human beings need to come together in a material fashion. Not just in rhetoric, not just in speeches, not just on platforms for presidential or other election campaigns. We need true working class solidarity. We need true proletarian class dictatorship, which has to start with relationships, connectivity, solidarity, and what, you know, Elena talked about on that episode that I just posted, kinship, right? That is so incredibly monumental to building any kind of community, any kind of uh, egalitarian project, even something as simple as mutual aid. You have to fucking care about other people in the way that you care about yourself to be willing to put aside your own interests and wants for somebody else's needs. We know that because nobody is fucking doing that because they're so invested in their own individualism. As am I occasionally, as are just about every human being that lives under the capitalist and imperialist system because it benefits the ruling class, their pockets and their power. But if I might, because I kind of got off on a tangent here, which... Again, it's a morning commute, so I don't feel too bad about it. But I do think that it's important that we bring it back to this conversation of fascism. I've discussed fascism on the show before. Um, I've discussed a very good interview uh, that I enjoyed that uh, Michael Parenti does, where he talks about the connections between fascism and capitalism. Now, I have recently, uh, in the last few months, been reading uh, George Jackson's Blood in My Eye. Um, I have a reading circle of some comrades who have been able to join me from my local area and from across the country to be able to, you know, have that space to not just read these books, right? but to extract out of these texts the material lessons needed for practical organizing today and a space to learn from one another who are actively organizing today about how we each can do better organizing ourselves. Um, Everybody that's in the group has either a want to get organized or they are already actively doing so. So that's kind of really cool because as I talk about on the show pretty frequently, like that's my goal is like, you know, I do the podcast and I do the blog. I read what I read and I like build the relationships that I build because I think that it's important for myself and other people right now to be getting organized because we have like an active growing, uh, you know, reactionary power. Well, what I want to say is this, is it's important because at the end of the day, if we don't want this shit to continue, somebody has got to put an end to it. They're not going to just stop. 
So because of that, um, I, uh, I think that it's important that we discuss the fact that right now, the ongoing rise in uh, far right uh, ideology, um, you know, hyper nationalism, militarism, etc. I think that shows clearly that this is a society in decline, um, a society focused on beauty and, uh, you know, wealth and power is a society that is not connected to its people because obviously not everyone has the wealth and power to focus on these things in the way our society tells us we're supposed to. You know, that's why the makeup industry makes so much money and destroys so many people's lives. That's why the porn industry does the same. So when we're analyzing the fascist system here in the United States, we have to understand that this is something that has developed with a certain purpose because what fascism is to its core is reform. Because, so let's look at the historical development of fascism. So in Italy, right, it's currently cited that Italy was the first birthplace of fascism. Uh, And so it was developed by World War I vets coming back who felt that their countries were not what they wanted them to be. They had these hyper-militaristic ideas. They had been endowed with chauvinism, racism, imperialism, etc. And they'd really been fueled by uh, their experience in the war with, uh, you know, this power trip. So if you read Antonio Gramsci, The Two Fascisms, uh, the uh, uh, there's a few different ones, but The Two Fascisms is a really good one. I, I, I can't pronounce the other one. <laughs> but so you have the rise of like fascism historically cited as in like the post-World War One Italian uh, countryside. So if we're analyzing it from that point and kind of bringing it forward, We can see the way in which it develops historically in Spain. We can see the way in which it develops historically in Germany. We can see the way in which it develops historically across Eastern Europe and elsewhere. One thing we can see clearly, and, you know, George Jackson brings this up, so this is not my idea. One thing we can see clearly is that it is almost always, if not always, capitalist in orientation. Now, I say if not always, because ultimately a lot of people want to argue that um, the capitalists become a part of it after fascism happens. I disagree. I think capitalism is the foundation before fascism, even if the capitalists themselves aren't central to the formation of fascism as they were in Italy, Germany, Spain, you know, Poland, all of the countries where fascism was. But I just don't really want to get into an argument about it. So I say if always because I am a baby. Anyways, um, I think that what's really important to understand is that it is more often than not capitalist in in nature, and it is always anti-class and anti-labor in orientation. These are two characteristics evident in every single one of the fascist projects that has developed historically in our, you know, human history. Because of that, we can agree, or we should agree, 
that the United States of America is a fascist nation. If we can get to that point, we must understand how fascism and ideas like socialism are related and contradictory. So, as we know, historically, folks like Mussolini, Hitler, and others, Franco even, used some basic rhetoric uh, to embolden the working class to get behind their projects. Now, oftentimes, this language was used to uh, segment the, quote, working class as a white male group and separate them from what would be considered their enemies. You know, we oftentimes hear of, you know, the enemy being Jewish folks in Germany, but it was not only Jewish folks. We know it was also historically Roma people. We know it was also gay people. We know it was also black people. We know it was also communists. So because of that, we have to understand that this system, fascism, is in fact inherently anti-working class, meaning that it is pro-ruling class. I'm not just going out on a limb and saying this. If we look historically at things like the Dusseldorf Conference, which I've mentioned before on the podcast, we see that the ruling class itself was actively being told, hey, so we know that, you know, you really want to be in power. And we know that there's these laws about monopolies. And we know that these people think that you're evil. And we know that, like, everybody thinks you're bad, but we think you're great. In fact, we know that you're the best ever. And Hitler even went on to tell, you know, the capitalists and industrialists in Germany, like, your blood is better than poor people's blood. And you have what you have because you are uh, humanly good. Whereas, you know, these people who are suffering, they're suffering because they are evil and they need to be dealt with accordingly. That shit is happening and has happened here in the United States since the very first day that Europeans set foot on this land. As Zicado talked about when he came on my show and as plenty of indigenous people have talked about in just about any speech uh, book or, you know, content that they've created, uh, that indigenous peoples, when Europeans came here, helped them. They gave them food. They taught them how to grow crops. They taught them how to build homes. They showed them everything that they could to help them survive. And the Europeans paid them with settler colonialism, genocide, rape, pirating and pillaging, and the destruction of entire nations of people, entire historical human groups were wiped off the face of the earth. Not just here in North America, in the Caribbean, in South America, in Africa, in Asia, all across the world. This is capitalism. This is the foundations of capitalism, and this is class society, meaning we have to get rid of this notion that this system in any way is worth saving. This system, meaning a system of exploitation by the few ruling class, powerful representatives over the majority of human beings and working people across the globe. Now, we have a lot of people, a lot of people I respect, a lot of people I enjoy speaking with, who feel that anything that looks, breathes, jumps, smells, or sounds like capitalism is capitalism. We know that capitalism is a historical and revolutionary development, revolutionary in the sense that it pulled 
the entire world over hundreds of years, you know, as we know, there are still people who are stuck in feudal times. It pulled human beings out of feudalism and developed a system that gave more power to more people, gave more of the wealth to more people, and allowed for further exploitation of more people by more people. It was revolutionary in the sense that it changed the very material foundation by which society developed prior. Not revolutionary in the sense that it is beneficial and that it is what we want, but revolutionary in the sense that it changed the structure of life to that point. Now, again, I got a lot of people who want to get upset with this point. That's the truth. That's what capitalism was. If it wasn't, we wouldn't have seen the entire fucking world change because of it. But we did. And so we know then that, in fact, this system, capitalism, has to be used until it can be tossed aside. What do I mean by that? Oh my goodness, Josh, here we go. The tankies, they always excuse the capitalists once, you know, they just want to be capitalists themselves. They just want to be in power. No. Uh, You know, Lenin said it himself. Other folks have said it better. uh, That essentially, we are forced right now because of globalism and international capitalist encirclement and imperialism to participate in a global society that is based off of capitalist production. In order to be able to feed ourselves, in order to be able to develop forms of technology, forms of communication, forms of connectivity, we have to trade in order to put clothes on our backs to have materials to build homes, to have jobs, because capitalism is hegemonic. However, we do not need to do capitalism as capitalists. We need to use capitalism to build socialism. Now, again, I'm going to lose a lot of people here who do not understand how that dichotomy can be, you know, interpreted. Lenin, in his time, spoke about the need to not only understand and be able to identify phenomena, but to be able to manipulate and wield them for the benefit of those who need to. Meaning, it is not enough to understand, to analyze, and to know about things like racism. It is important to know about and understand things like racism so as to eliminate racism. It is important to know and understand that you have a cyst or a growth under your breast or, you know, uh, on your back or whatever. You got a big mole that's growing on on your neck or something. It's better to know and analyze that, not simply just to be able to be like, cool, I have a cyst or I have a mole that's growing, but to know what the fuck to do about, do I gotta get it removed? Do I have to, you know, go do radiation treatment? Um, The importance of things like Marxism as a science is not just simply to be able to go around and say, I know about these things. I understand these things. But to be able to know and understand these things enough and to a point where we can be the masters of these things. If we, socialists, communists, and revolutionaries, use capitalism to build up our modes of production, to disperse food, housing, 
education, and other human necessities to those who otherwise would not get it. To build up our defenses against imperialism and to fight sanctions, blockades, and active invasion, bombardment, and occupation. Can it be said that this is the same as using capitalism to enslave all of Africa? Using capitalism to enslave Asian, African, Indian, Indonesian, Latin American children and women in our workplaces and in our sweatshops? Is it the same as saying that we are going to use capitalism to build a military that has over 800 military bases across the world that occupies the entire globe and forces them to fall under their hegemonic power? No. Socialists have to use the market system. They have to use the global capitalist system because otherwise they have no ability to get medicine, to get food, to get clothes, to get materials to build with because the only way to get those is through using the capitalist system because where they are being sold is within the capitalist markets. It is the most difficult initial struggle of a socialist project, but it is an unavoidable one until the very moment when we strike at the heart of this capitalist imperialist system and put it away for good. We have a huge revolution to develop and to have. You know, and we can't do that idealistically. We can't do that ignorantly. And we can't do this, you know, sporadically and spontaneously and, and just because we want to. We have to find ways for this to work. We have to succeed. So, follow the leadership of. Groups like the Black Alliance for Peace, uh, the Red Nation, uh, you know, the Sandinista Revolution, the Cuban Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, follow their leadership. Because you know what? They're doing it. And we're not. Go organize, folks. Have a great day. Peace.